0: Okay, so instead of facial dermatitis, I've been working on a new talk that I'm I like a lot better, um, and so we're gonna do this one instead. And the handout will uh, go up uh, within the next day or two. I'll send it to Greg. Um, so the title of this talk is "Managing Dermatitis Without Patch Testing," and the reason that I put this talk together, you know, I I would consider myself a patch tester, and the. Truth is, despite anything you read anywhere, um, of everybody who comes to get patch tested, about 10% of them actually have contact dermatitis from which they recover. And so the other 90% have dermatitis of other causes, and those are the people who end up seeing a lot more of. And so there's definitely value to patch testing, but other than using it to rule out contact dermatitis in a lot of cases, there are definite patterns that come out in ways you can manage dermatitis very effectively without having to have uh, patch testing available. And so we're gonna talk about kind of the stuff I've, the patterns that I've kind of put together over the years. Now, one of the premises to this, though, is from an educational perspective, we teach contact dermatitis in the absolute worst possible way. So you learn about the allergen, then you learn what it's in, and then when you see a patient with dermatitis, you're supposed to then be able to pick out you know okay this person has a rash behind their ears I need to think about formaldehyde and fragrance and what what other allergens cause a rash behind the ears and that's a very unnatural way to think about it okay and, and that's how novices think in, in kind of whenever you look at levels of expertise and we'll talk about that a little bit it's, it's called hypothesis testing and that's a mechanism of problem solving that that novices use and the idea is that it, it looks like this, that in your brain, right, you're supposed to have these little folders, you know, cocomidopropyl betaine, fragrance, formaldehyde, nickel, methylchloroisothiazolinone, and then you fill them up with information, like, okay, fragrance tends to show up as a rash from personal care products, mainly on the face, and women, sometimes the neck, and so then whenever you see somebody with a rash, that fits that description, you're supposed to look through all of your folders mentally and pluck out all of the folders that fit that category. And and that doesn't work, okay, it's just a, a bad way of doing things. And the other problem is that for most of us, our brain doesn't look like this, right, our brain looks like that, okay. And most important folder in your brain is this one, where you're saying, for God's sakes, I know I remember something that might Like these folders are all skinny, and that one's real thick, (laughs) all right? It doesn't, it just doesn't work. So the correct way to teach contact dermatitis is to learn to recognize clinical syndromes of dermatitis that are reproducible. So to instead of think, okay, which allergens You know, I'm going to go through my folders and try and pluck ones out. You should instead have a folder that's your, your, a mental folder that's your facial dermatitis folder, or a mental folder that is your neck dermatitis or your whatever dermatitis. And then once you have that folder, then you can put into it which allergens and, and those types of things. But it's really not useful to think in terms of learning the allergens. You want to learn the clinical presentations, which are what you're going to see, and then you want to try and learn the allergens that go with it. And this is called pattern recognition. And this is how a knowledgeable, quote, non-expert thinks. So somebody who's competent but not, you know, absolutely this is all that they do and their, you know, their uh, absolute peak level of expertise. So, and this is just a, a way to think about this problem solving maturation. So a novice tends to be over here using hypothesis testing and an expert tends to be over here using pattern recognition and forward thinking. And so this this approach, this hypothesis testing, kind of the more you learn, the less you use it, you never stop using it altogether because sometimes you're gonna see stuff, even if you've got all of these folders of clinical presentations in your brain, you're still gonna see stuff that doesn't fit, that you don't have a folder for, and then you've gotta go back and use hypothesis testing and think what in the world could this possibly be? And then try and think through, well, could it be that why or why not? But all right, so now we're gonna talk about some actual content, now that I've sort of explained my approach to this and why I've really stopped lecturing about allergens and, and lecture much more about clinical syndromes. So there, there are clinical patterns of dermatitis, things that will tell you a tip-off that, oh, I need to think about blah, and it, you know I need to think about this in specific, allergy to this, this kind of product, these types of things, timing, distribution, and course of disease. And if you can recognize them, then you can make empiric recommendations. So if you can have a list of maybe 10 products that you, need, that you know that, okay, whenever I see this shampoo, I can always use if I'm worried about allergy to shampoos. You have really gotta remember one shampoo. You've, you have know, gotta have one soap, you gotta have one moisturizer. You gotta have just a few products that you know, okay, whenever I'm worried about it, boom, that's what I need to, to recommend. If you know that, you'll be much better off than if you know 50 allergens and everything about them. It's a lot more useful to have 10 products than it is to have 50 ingredients that you know about. All right, so now we're gonna talk about individual cases. So this, love, this is a, a, um, a diagnosis that once you start to look for it, you can make some significant changes in people's lives. So very nonspecific looking dermatitis, right? Some erythematous papules, uh, not a whole lot of scaling kind of nonspecific, this woman is incredibly itchy. The thing that I will typically hear, uh, upper back, sometimes the flanks, waistline is another very common area, Uh, anterior thighs and middle thighs, and just intensely itchy, drives people insane. Almost always women who are sort of perimenopausal, so maybe between the ages of 45 and 65, always associated, not always, very, very regularly associated with a big stressor So change in their job, loss of their job, they moved, they got a divorce, one of their kids got sick, whatever. And the stressor will usually be, it'll be delayed, maybe in a year before the onset. And so the key thing whenever you're looking at at this one is number one, that whenever we move the bra strap, we see that there's an accentuation right here along, along the bra. And what this pattern is, so here, Lower legs, another place that we'll commonly see it, kind of at the top of the socks, okay? And then the waistband is the other area that I'll most commonly see it. And so severe itching under a bra with presumed bra allergy. So Victoria's Secrets is based in Columbus. So they love that I like to talk and tell people that bra allergy pretty much doesn't exist because lots of people think they're allergic to their bra and they get lots of phone calls about that. So severe itching along the panty lines or the vulva itching along the waistline, itching along sock elastic. And it also is important that it, if you ask people about history, it'll, you'll get this. I'm intensely itchy all the time, but if you took a picture of me on Monday, I might have a really bad spot on my shoulder and a really bad spot on my right you know, waistline. But then if you took another picture of me three days later, it might be my abdomen and my posterior left thigh and those other two spots would have cleared up. And that's a very specific history. There are very few dermatologic diseases that sort of move around that quickly, that, but that are also longer lasting than urticaria, right? So urticaria is typically, we talk 24 hours. Well, so, so what is this? It's symptomatic dermographism. And the key thing here, is, the key thing is the distribution. So around the bra and the waistline, those are the two tightest things that people wear, uh, anterior thighs, middle thighs, sometimes around the socks, all places where people get lots of friction and rubbing from their clothing. What throws people off with this is that we're taught to think about dermatographism or dermographism as hives. And it it stops being hives though, because if your mast cells release more than just histamine, your mast cells release uh, prostaglandins and chymase and tryptase and all this other stuff. And so if you get chronic repetitive mast cell stimulation and degranulation, in a particular area, eventually it goes from being just a hive to a more persistent dermatitis. And so that's where people then kind of have the disconnect because you're not looking at hives, you're looking at a dermatitis. But it's the distribution and it's kind of that timing of that it does still move around much more quickly than say an atopic dermatitis does. So how do you manage these people? So as loose fitting garments as possible and then high doses of antihistamines. And so for me, high doses of antihistamines means multiple agents, and I'll usually do fexofenadine. This is where I'll usually end up, it's not necessarily where I start, but fexofenadine, 360 milligrams in the morning, loratadine 20 milligrams midday, and then cetirizine at 20 milligrams QHS. So double the dose, double the normal dose of each of these. I usually add singular 10 milligrams if I don't get enough benefit from the antihistamines, and I actually forgot to put on here, I also give people nizatidine. Uh, which is Axid, which is an H2 blocker. It's 150 milligrams BID. Uh, and that goes, so usually what I will do is start the first day, I'll put them on the nizatidine, 150 milligrams twice a day, fexofenadine, 180 in the morning, loratadine, 10 milligrams in the afternoon, and then cetirizine, 10 milligrams at night. When they come back in a month, if they're not better enough, I double all the doses, except for the nizatidine. so that's whenever I get to here. And then if they come back in another month, if they're not better, then I add the Singulair. One of the things that, that you have to do also is set their expectations correctly. So you're, you're never going to stop them from getting this, but you're going to reduce the itch by about 80%. And so if, and what you want to do is get them from being somebody who would describe themselves as an itchy person who spends most of their life trying not to itch to being somebody who's a normal person who occasionally itches. You, you kind of want to reset. The, you wanna, that's how good you want to get them but you're never gonna get their mast cells to stop degranulating, but you can make them stop itching so much whenever they do degranulate. And so, and it, and it takes fairly high doses. I, I will add hydroxyzine if somebody wants that for itching at night. Uh, Doxepin I find too hard for people to tolerate. And these antihistamines at these doses, patients get a little bit nervous. What You literally could never hurt anybody. So, you know, I was taught, whenever I was a resident, was taught by Dr. Baikowski that I think it was very safe to give up to 720 milligrams a day of fexafenadine and probably even more. It's just, it's almost impossible to hurt people with it. (coughs) Set expectations, like I said, 80% reduction in the itch. So next pattern that, that I love. So this woman comes in, has had this hand dermatitis for about 10 years, okay, she's in tears, because she's had it for 10 years and it hurts so much. She's been on chronic prednisone, methotrexate, CELCEPT, Imuran, every topical you can imagine, and and the only thing that helps is when she's on high-dose steroids. They'll clear up for short-term and then come right back. The key historical thing here is that this does not itch. Hurts like crazy, but it doesn't itch. Okay, the other things that are important about this are the distribution. So number one, that it doesn't itch. Number two, this distribution. Thumbs, right, the, like the finger, the pulps of the digits of the thumbs, lateral aspect of the index finger, and then the tips. And typically it's gonna involve the tips primarily of these three fingers, maybe a little bit of spread to these two, but palm is relatively spared, thumb, index finger, does not itch, fissures like crazy and hurts like crazy. It's a very, very reproducible pattern. So this is her after I think a month after we had instituted appropriate therapy, and this was her at two months. And so, you know, 10 years of being on aggressive immunosuppression, um, and, and it just doesn't work for this disease. It's just just an, another guy, another example, sort of this involvement of the, you know, of the tips, thumbs especially, index finger, it's usually worse on one hand than the other. What I'm showing here, if you see these people and you look at them closely, there'll be loss of dermatoglyphics. So if you look at their finger, at their finger print, it's gone. All right, and, and they'll actually often comment that they've noticed that themselves, that they don't have any fingerprint anymore. And they may, if they had to get fingerprinted for work or something like that, they w- they'll tell you that they weren't able to get a reading on their fingerprint. All right, so you get loss of fingerprint and it gets shiny uh, as a result. And so what's the clinical pattern here? This very painful fissuring sensitive dermatitis, so it hurts but it doesn't itch. Usually the first three digits, primarily the tips and lateral aspect of the index finger, usually one hand worse. Hand dominance doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they're a righty or a lefty. That doesn't predict which hand is worse. Uh, I thought that it would, but it doesn't. Skin shiny with loss of dermatoglyphics in the palm is relatively spared. And so the diagnosis here is frictional dermatitis from paper and keyboards. And so very reproducibly, these people either work in the medical field, their attorneys, their administrative assistants, Uh, And the other place where I'll see it is people who work at say the post office or DHL or UPS or somewhere like that Because the coarser the paper the worse it is so cardboard Wrapping paper paper dust that kind of stuff is worse than regular paper, but it's You can think of it very much the way that you think of say an injury in an athlete Okay, so you take a football player who's been playing for 20 years never had a problem with their knee one day they hurt their knee from that point forward Normal things that they have always done will aggravate the knee. They don't have to do something out of the ordinary to cause the injury to persist. Same thing happens here. Once they get this, it takes very little for it to maintain. So the woman that I showed at the beginning had worked at, um, I think UPS. She had retired two years ago and never got any better. The key things in her that were maintaining this were opening the mail at home every day and reading the newspaper. That, That was all it took to maintain it once it got started. So how do you manage these people? Soak and smear for hands, so I really like that approach. Warm, plain warm water, 15 minutes of soaking. Uh, take your hands out of the water, pat them dry. I like Eucerin Plus Intensive Repair Hand Cream, maybe Vaseline, um, either one is okay. Have them put that on thick right after that and then put on, I like jersey gloves rather than the white cotton. So jersey are usually, they're also 100% cotton, they're brown, they're cheaper and easier to find and they stay on better than white cotton gloves. Get them at Lowe's, Home Depot, they are be in the gardening section because uh, they're just kind of a cheap glove for if you're doing dirty work. So be cognizant of exposure to causative agents. Newspaper, cardboard, mail, file folders, books, magazines, paperwork, You know, a- anything um, that's, that's paper. And tell people to be cognizant whenever they're gonna handle these things of how they're handling it. Don't slide your fingers on it. I had one patient who, we, we went through this and, and through the whole thing, and no, I'm not doing anything, and I'm not touching anything, and I don't slide, and I don't whatever. So I hand her my handout, on frictional dermatitis and she takes a piece of paper, folds it in half and pinches it between her two fingers and, you know, seals the fold as she slides it across and I said, oh, you ever done that before? And she's, oh my god, I do that, you know, with every, she was a psychologist, I do that every client at the end of my note. She got better, but it's a, it was a, it's a good example to me if you can spend hours and hours and hours questioning somebody about you know what do you do what's your exposure it's a lot more effective to kind of tell them these are the things to look for go keep that in the back of your mind and, and see if you pick it up right if you notice yourself doing it because it, it's not that helpful to sit there and question people so golf gloves or baseball batting gloves if you can get people if they don't work with the public if they can wear those while they're handling paper so i, I don't like rubber gloves for this i don't like fabric gloves i like something that's snug fitting and that breathes the other thing that I'll sometimes use are uh, gardening gloves that are like um, a, a fabric, but then the palm is covered in, in vinyl usually. So it's like a glove that was, di- it's almost like the glove was dipped halfway in rubber. Uh, and those actually work pretty well also. And I tell them to get them greasy on the inside. So before you put your glove on, you always put on a, a decent layer of that and Plus Intensive Repair hand cream. We want the gloves to get greasy on the inside that's again gonna make them a lot more therapeutic frequent moisturizer every time they wash their hands and I like I said I like usern plus intensive repair Neutrogena Norwegian formula fragrance free is also pretty good but it's it's greasier what's nice about both of these no al- n- no allergens in either of them so you don't have to worry at all about contact dermatitis or anything like that these are just two nice hand moisturizing products that you can recommend in general with no allergens so frictional dermatitis this was actually a patient who Dr. Baikowski sent me. Uh, And this was the guy when Dr. Baikowski was managing him. This was him when I was managing him. (laughs) All right. So the story of this gentleman, he was seen by his primary care physician, had a rash on his thigh, uh, I think was treated with the cure-all of clotrimazole and betamethasone. And it got a little bit better, but then when he tried to stop the clotrimazole and betamethasone, it got a lot worse. And so at that point, he sent him on to dermatologist, Dr. Baikowski. and Dr. Baikowski appropriately managed him with a couple of different topical steroids that would work whenever they were applied, but then when he tried to stop them, the rash got worse, it was progressively getting worse and worse until the guy needed prednisone. Cleared on prednisone, but then on taper from the prednisone at about 20 milligrams would break out in this, kind of widespread exanthematous appearing eruption. And so, you know, could not get him off the prednisone, because every time you get up to 40, he'd be fine. You'd go down to 20 and he'd break out. So whenever we patch tested him, we actually found out he was allergic to prednisone. All right? And I know that I was taught when I was a resident that, you know, when a patient comes in and says they're allergic to prednisone, you nod and smile nicely, and then you walk out of the room and laugh with your staff at what an idiot they are, because nobody could possibly be allergic to prednisone. Prednisone allergies are actually not that rare. Okay, so prednisone is related to hydrocortisone in terms of what class of steroid it is. Hydrocortisone is a class A steroid and about 3% of people who get patch tested are allergic to, to hydrocortisone. My guess is maybe 10% of those people are allergic to prednisone orally, but it, it's not vanishingly rare. And so what do we do with this guy, because he did need a steroid to get through this, dexamethasone, so oral decadron uh, is a class C steroid. There's no allergy to it the conversion is about one milligram of decadron is about 7.5 milligrams of prednisone. And so if any patients you have who have become sort of prednisone dependent and have a widespread eruption, it's empirically very worthwhile to just say, okay, let's switch you from prednisone to dexamethasone, convert, we'll convert you to the same dose and then we'll try and taper you off to dexamethasone and see how that goes. And it's, it's gonna be maybe 10% of, of people who are sort of prednisone dependent um, but it's 10% of people that you make a big difference in their life. About 7.5 milligrams of prednisone equals one milligram of dexamethasone. So this was a girl with atopic dermatitis who was obviously doing a good job of applying her mometasone. right? We've got nice kind of vasoconstriction from putting it on but her atopic dermatitis which had been pretty well controlled for most of her life with topical steroids had stopped responding very well and was just continually getting worse so she ended up being allergic to mometazone, a class D steroid. This girl, bad facial dermatitis, this is a picture she sent me from her cell phone because by the time she saw me she was better because she gave up putting on the desonide that her dermatologist had given her and whenever she stopped putting on the desonide after a couple of weeks she got better because she was allergic to the desonide. This woman uh, came to see me after three trips to the ER for recurrent bilateral upper extremity spontaneous onset cellulitis. Very common diagnosis, right? That happens all the time that people will get recurrent bilateral upper extremity cellulitis that just happens to have a very sharp cutoff, you know, right here. And so in this woman, it turned out she was allergic to acetyl alcohol in the trimicinolone cream that she was using. All right, this woman had chronic nummular eczema. It turned out she was allergic to lanolin in her topical steroid. This guy had a scalp dermatitis, and so I gave him Olux foam, and he came back with a hand dermatitis. So he was allergic to the propylene glycol in the Olux. This girl got a rash from her iPod strap, which her dermatologist figured, you know, figured out okay this was a neoprene allergy. Had her stop wearing the iPod strap. That got better. She. Didn't quite get it, and so she kept using the same iPod holder, but, you know, it was just holding it in her hand. So then got a rash in her hand, her dermatologist explained to her more about what was going on, so she stopped doing that. But then it, it still never got better. This was her several months later. And in this case, it was sorbitan sesquioleate in the topical steroid that she was using. This guy had a, a mild facial dermatitis, was using Cutivate cream, got switched to Cutivate ointment, and got a lot worse. So we got a nice dermatitis here. Right, so sorbitant sesquioleate in the cutivate ointment. This girl had a mild facial dermatitis that then became worse and became chronic, and she was allergic to the formaldehyde that was in cutivate lotion. All right, so what's the clinical pattern that I'm getting at here, right? That was a hodgepodge of patients with dermatoses in different areas that really didn't have a lot in, in common morphologically. The clinical pattern here is patients that don't get the response you expect when you put them on topical steroids. So there's a certain, I think we, we all have a good sense of, there's some people you put on a topical steroid, you probably know they're not gonna get a whole lot better. But then there are a lot of people you put on a topical steroid and you're fully expecting they're gonna get better and they're gonna get a good response from it. And when that doesn't happen, you need to think about why. And, and with this clinical pattern, right, they could get worse on the topical steroid, they might stay the same, they might get better, but then get worse whenever you try and take a steroid holiday. And so the diagnosis here is allergy to active or inactive ingredients in topical steroids, okay? And there are a lot of different ingredients that, that can fit into this. So the active ingredient, the active molecules, a lot of different vehicle ingredients, and it's not worth your time to, to know any of that because number one, you're never gonna remember it, and number two, individually, they're all rare. It's only in aggregate that they matter. So, so what do you do? These, this is actually one of the easier ones to do something about. If your first line agent doesn't work, so you always just put people on what you think is gonna work best, but if it doesn't work, if it falls into this category that it doesn't work the way you thought it was gonna work or it uh, gets worse whenever you try and stop it or whatever, then you switch them to a Class C steroid or to a non-steroidal with no vehicle allergens. And there are only a couple of products you need to remember. dexamethasone ointment, dexamethasone gel, so both of those are Class II uh, steroids, no vehicle allergens, Topic, the active ingredient is totally non-allergenic. Nobody is allergic to either of these, okay? Cloderm cream is probably as good as you're gonna get for mid-potency. Nobody's allergic to alone, the active ingredient. In the vehicle, there is paraben, but it's one of the, it's the only other class C steroid, and with only paraben as an, as an ingredient, it's pretty good. And then protopic ointment is the other thing that I'll use. The other thing I'll sometimes do is, compound desoxymethasone ointment maybe in a one to one or a one to three ratio uh, with petrolatum. Because that way we take it from a class two down to being something weaker. I don't know exactly what, but at least it's not class two. But so in that pattern, of uh, people don't get the response you expect from a topical steroid. Whenever they come back, switch them to desoxymethasone. And if they are steroid allergic, that'll do the trick. If it's prednisone you're worried about, dexamethasone. All right, so next series of, of cases. This was a gentleman who came in uh, from the ER with this pretty severe uh, face and neck. It also involved his forearms in, in the middle of the summer. Happened after he took a, a road trip down to the south. He was pivolate allergic or hydrocortisone. This guy had a, this nice armpit rash, and this was a picture he took at home and brought in to me. Uh, turned out he was allergic to benzocaine that was in his wife's vagicil, which is what he was using to treat the itching, and which was extremely effective. Benzocaine is a fabulous antipyritic agent, but people get allergic to it. This woman, another one of my, this is a very interesting diagnosis, so it's called erosive papulonodular dermatosis, and it's a direct toxic effect of benzocaine. These patients um, end up putting the benzocaine on about every 20 to 30 minutes, so they'll put it on like literally 30, 40 times a day, if they try to stop it, they get in such intense pain that they become suicidal. And that's reported over and over in the literature with these people. We tried high dose prednisone, we tried topical lidocaine, um, couldn't get her off of the benzocaine. We ended up telling her to go to the ER where they would probably diagnose her with a presumed infection and admit her and then wouldn't give her the benzocaine, she would be in extreme pain, so they would give her IV sedation. And then when she woke up two days later, it was broken and she was able to stop the benzocaine. Uh, and so essentially we had to admit her and sedate her to get her off of the benzocaine, but then she was okay. All right, so this was erosive papulonodular dermatitis due to benzocaine. This person, this sort of palmar dermatitis with a cutoff right there, right? This was tea tree oil allergy, it's actually a relatively common allergy. Uh, This girl got an eyelid dermatitis after she got uh, permanent makeup tattooing. The concern, of course, was that she was allergic to the stuff that they had tattooed under her eyelids. Fortunately, that was not the case. It was bacitracin that she was using to try and prevent infection after the application, after the tattooing. This woman had rash on just one earlobe uh, and turned out to be polymyxin B allergy. So we all know about neomycin allergy, we all know about bacitracin allergy, the third ingredient in neosporin, polymyxin. This girl got fire ant bites, and they just kept getting worse and worse and worse until finally she broke out in this rash all over. And so in this girl, it was bacitracin allergy from treating the fire ant bites with the um, topical antibacterial, but then it got so bad that she got an id reaction. And so what's the clinical pattern here? Again, this is a sort of hodgepodge of stuff, right? Different places, different morphologies, the whole thing. The clinical pattern is patients with a severe dermatitis that's relatively localized and not typical of any known dermatosis, right? So it's not, you know, macular amyloid that you get on the anterior shins, for example. Not, it's not a known dermatosis, it's severe and localized. Anytime you see that, it's an an allergy to something they're putting on. It's one of those things that you, you have to look at it And basically say, look, there's nothing else this could be. There's no—it's something you're putting on, and I don't know what, but it's something you're putting on. And so what I'll typically tell to these, you know, I usually I get to patch test them and we'll figure something out, but completely stop application of all products to the area. You know, everything—they put literally nothing on, and I'll go through a whole. You know, are you putting anything on? No. Have you put anything on in the last week? No. Have you put anything on in the last six weeks? No. Last six months, have you put anything on this? No. Have you ever been to a drugstore? No. <laughs> so they, they will deny putting anything on. So you've got to just kind of plant the seed. Don't, you know, I'm gonna give you this. This should be the only thing that you put on. Don't put, what it, don't put anything else on ever. And also, you have to tell them to think about retained allergen. And so, for instance, if you put something on your face and then you sleep at night, if it gets through your pillowcase down to the actual pillow, you're really never gonna wash that, you're not gonna wash the pillow, you'll wash the pillowcases, but that's a source of re-exposure. Jackets, clothing, shoes, all kinds of things can be placed for retained allergens, so they don't necessarily have to be continuing to put it on, but in most cases, they are continuing to put it on, even if they're not aware of it. And you have to be very explicit, if you put it on once every six weeks, that'll be enough, that you'll never get better. So people are thinking in terms of, you know, are they putting something on every day? Once every six weeks is enough. And so I'll switch these people empirically to dezoxymedazone ointment. And if it's, you know, the eyelids or something, I'll compound the dezoxymedazone with clebatazole to make it weaker. And try to use non allergenic replacement products. And and we'll talk a little bit about that list of products that you can just, you know, here's the stuff you can use. There really aren't any allergens in this. So now lip dermatitis, right? So I I generally dislike lip dermatitis because it's very challenging. um, And it's rare to get a good outcome. Uh, most cases of lip dermatitis are pretty recalcitrant and chronic but these are a two appearance this is an appearance that's fairly typical um, the, the lips are puffy and especially at the vermilion border uh, there's some puffiness here you can almost even trick yourself into thinking maybe there are some vesicles along the vermilion here you can just see how puffy this vermilion is. This is a different morphology of lip dermatitis right so there's lip dermatitis that is just the lips, right? May extend beyond the vermilion border just a hair, but really it's lip limited, okay? Then you go to something like this where they're spread beyond the lips, right? Where this guy's got it coming significantly down past the vermilion border. He's got it kind of off to the side here, and this is him, that picture does not project terribly well, but this was him at his follow-up visit four weeks later after he had had this for, I think, about a couple years. And he was dramatically better, but like I said, this picture isn't, isn't projecting well. What's the clinical patterns here? Chronic lip dermatitis, okay? So it can be very itchy, can be chapped, usually swollen, especially at the vermilion border. And in the diagnosis here, so for those first two pictures, which is one subtype of lip dermatitis, Irritant dermatitis from liquid, shiny, shimmery, metallic glosses. The plumpers can be a problem, but most patients figure that out for themselves if they're having a problem from the plumpers. And then toothpaste can also be an issue. Now the the thing about this that's most important to take away is the liquid, shiny, shimmery, metallic. And we'll talk about what kind of products tend to be okay. But if it's in a tube, if it looks wet, if it looks shimmery, if it looks any of that stuff, it's an irritant. It's a pretty strong irritant. Right, and then allergic contact dermatitis from toothpaste was the other guy. And then the, the, the cool thing about this picture that I just love from him was the, this part over here where it's off to the one side because that was where he held his toothbrush, right? And so it was just such a nice little pattern of, of it fit perfectly. All right, so the thing with, that you look at with these people, whenever it's true allergic contact dermatitis, it tends to spread beyond the lips. Okay, there's a significant extension beyond the vermilion. I have not seen any cases of a really preserved vermilion border when it turned out to be true allergic contact dermatitis. Whenever it's true allergic contact, the vermilion border is always significantly violated. All right, so when the vermilion is still intact, then I know that we're much more looking at a non-immune contact reticaria slash irritant dermatitis from products that people are using. So how do I manage them? So in, the way that I think of this is the lipstick that my mom used, right? So this was the stuff that's, it's in the tube, you turn it, it comes out, it's basically like a candle that you're trying to rub onto your lips, all right? So the waxier and less liquid it is, the better it is. And so they've got to switch to that type of a lipstick. I've had some good success with Biafine in these people. And I have them switch to a kid's toothpaste that is not mint flavored. The other toothpaste that I like is Tom's of Maine's apricot flavored. Uh, That's a very non-allergenic toothpaste and and patients don't mind it. They can get it at Whole Foods or they can order it online. The other thing to tell these people about management is it takes forever. So once these women stop using all their lip products except for maybe a waxy lipstick, it's going to take probably three months to see them recover and even a single application of the stuff that they were using before, the kind of shiny shimmery liquidy stuff, single application of that stuff will make them relapse and go right back to square one. So it takes a minimum of three, three months, usually up to six months, to really see it get better. So avoid minty or cinnamon flavored gums. I've not really seen anybody ha- have that be the etiology, but it makes sense that it could. So this guy, dorsal foot dermatitis, very chronic. Dorsal foot dermatitis, very chronic. Dorsal foot dermatitis, very chronic. Allergy to myconazole and econazole. All right, and so those are not common allergies. That's not the point that I'm getting at. The point that I'm getting at dorsal foot dermatitis, right, so when you look at a foot, somebody comes with a rash on their foot, you know 90% of what you need to know as soon as you know if it's the dorsal foot or the plantar foot. So the plantar foot, my experience is it's exceedingly rare for that to be a dermatitis, right? It's psoriasis, it's tinea, something like that. A dorsal foot dermatitis is almost always either an irritant or an allergic contact dermatitis. It starts as an irritant dermatitis in the vast majority of cases, and then people can develop a secondary allergic contact dermatitis from the things that they try and treat it with. Okay, so irritant contact dermatitis with possible secondary allergic on the dorsal foot. And so the the other thing that you need to really remember here about the allergic contact part of this is, shoes never get washed, right? So since shoes never get washed, if you put Neosporin on once, it's in your shoes forever. If you get allergic to topical antifungal, it's in your shoes forever. So these people, if if you're actually considering significantly allergic contact dermatitis, I will tell them you need to go buy one or two pairs of shoes, brand new, new socks, and then those should be the only shoes and socks you wear for the next six weeks. So don't throw away your old shoes, but you can't wear any of them for six weeks. And then if you get better, we know that there's an allergic contact dermatitis to a retained allergen in your shoes, And then you can try wearing your old shoes one pair at a time to experiment and see which ones have the allergen in them. Okay? So that's whenever you think about the allergic contact dermatitis on the dorsal foot, you think about allergen retained in the shoe. And so if primarily suspect irritant, I like non-cotton sock liners. So why do people get irritant dermatitis on the dorsal foot? They get irritant dermatitis on the dorsal foot because they sweat and that's an irritant and because cotton socks are very rough. Right, so if you look at the inside of a cotton sock, it's a very harsh material, and its shoes are tight. And so you've got this relatively rough cotton sock, tight against the skin, rubbing all day in a very moist environment. And that's very damaging to the, to the skin. And so what, I, what do you do? A sock liner, and so sock liner is just a very thin, it's usually nylon, uh, something like that, that is, and a men's dress sock will work fine as a sock liner. Um, that goes on first and then you put your cotton sock over it. And so that way the cotton sock is rubbing on the liner, not rubbing on the skin. I use a lot of glycopyrrolate because you need to try and control their hyperhidrosis. That's the only thing I've ever had any good success with, with foot hyperhidrosis. I usually do one milligram uh, up to three times a day. And I tell people they can pretty much use it on an as-needed basis. Um, The biggest problem with glycopyrrolate is in some people you can't get their feet to stop itching and to stop sweating until you get their whole body to stop sweating. And a lot of these people are athletes or people who have manual labor jobs. And if you make them stop sweating, you can give them heat stroke. And so you just have to be careful. You can't completely make them stop sweating. I try to avoid steroids because they make the skin more susceptible to irritant dermatitis. And if I primarily suspect allergic, new socks and shoes, there's ointment. All right, so next series of patients here. So this is a, a relatively young girl. It's got a a dermatitis along the lateral aspect of the neck and jawline. Two individuals here, dermatitis preauricular, extending a little bit postauricular, again preauricular, a little bit postauricular. Two more people, kind of a similar pattern, preauricular, extending down onto the neck a little bit, preauricular. This one with a nice dermatitis that's predominantly in the folds, but again, lateral aspect of the neck jawline, eyelids, lateral aspect of the neck, chronic dermatitis. What's the clinical pattern here? This is a very specific clinical pattern, and this is a rinse off pattern. Okay, so the places you see a rinse off pattern, preauricular, postauricular, eyelids and neck, jawline. Think about somebody who's washing their hair, so shampoo, and they're leaning forward into the shower and it's rinsing down, right? rinsing down over that preauricular area, the eyelids, and the neck. The fold pattern is useful. Um, and we'll talk about that in a sec. But the, the lateral face slash preauricular, the lateral neck, the jawline, and folds that would be open while rinsing your hair. So we're going to talk some about eyelid dermatitis here in a minute. But it's, it's not so much that your eyelid thin is skin that's the problem. This, your eyelid skin is thin, that's the problem. The bigger problem is that whenever we go back to, say, this woman, who's just a great example of it, Whenever you're rinsing shampoo or conditioner, right, your eyes are closed and your neck is extended. And so if you rinse and you leave any residue, you spend the rest of the day with your eyes open and your neck like this. And so whenever you're doing that, you've created these folds that may have some retained allergen or irritant in them from rinsing, and then you're spending all day with that being occluded on itself because the fold closes over, right? it's an interesting pattern whenever you see that, the, the, the uh, fold predominant dermatitis. Can be irritant, can be allergic, but it's always extrinsic. It's always something external. So with these people, what's the diagnosis? It's shampoo allergy. Almost 100% of the time, shampoo allergy. It Might be irritant dermatitis, but it's often allergic contact dermatitis from shampoo. So management, the only two shampoos on the market that I know of, that don't have fragrance, methyl methylchloroisothiazolinone, or formaldehyde, which are the, these are the, those are the big four for shampoo allergens, are free and clear shampoo, and then AFM Safe Choice shampoo, but I just found out from that company that it does actually have methylchloroisothiazolinone, MCI in it. They just thought that it was at such a low level they didn't need to include it in the ingredients. So, no longer as big of a fan of AFM Safe Choice until after I've patch tested them, but, this is, you know, MCI is on the true test. So if, you're, if you have the ability to do the true test, then you, you know if they can use this or not. I like this shampoo a lot better than I like free and clear. It's, and it, they're both hard to get, right? You've got to order either one of these. You can't get them in stores, or you could have the store order them. Um, but so I, I do sell the AFM Safe Choice in my office just to make it easier for people to get it. If I'm gonna send them to the web, I send them to a website called needs.com. And then Neutrogena T-SAL is the, is the most easily available relatively hypoallergenic shampoo. The only allergen in Neutrogena T-SAL is cocomidopropyl betaine. It doesn't have any preservatives, doesn't have fragrance. In terms of an easily available, like you're going to walk out of my office and go buy something, Neutrogena T-SAL is, is the least allergenic shampoo that I know of that's available in stores. So. Another pattern that I love, this girl is one of my favorite cases of all time because I saved her college career, all right? She would go away to college, get this horrible rash on her cheek, nobody could figure it out, she'd come back home, the rash would get better. She went back to college, got the rash on her cheek, had to come home, went back to college, got the rash on her cheek, had to come home, was gonna drop out of college because clearly there was something about college to which she was allergic, all right? So we patch test her, she turns out allergic to nickel and cobalt. And so who knows what these girls are all allergic to? Cell phones, right? So this, this is a nice case of you, you almost wonder how could this person not figure it out on their own, okay? Because there's their cell phone with the nice little square thing that happens to be right exactly where they have their little square patch of dermatitis on their cheek. It's a very nice example of, of the patients are not always the best, um, the most observant individuals. About their own problems, right? So she's got this nice little square that's right where she's getting her dermatitis, and we did a dimethylglyoxine test to confirm that there was nickel being released from her little square. So this guy—it uh, was an op- optometrist who had this dermatitis on his fingertips. This was him on 2,000 milligrams a day of SelSept. Now we figured we were thinking that he was going to be allergic, maybe to like one of the ingredients in an eye drop or something but it actually turned out he was allergic to thioureas. All right, so those are an ingredient in neoprene and it turned out it was the little dropper bottle from one of his thingamabobs, okay? <laughs> <laughs> That's a, that is a patch testing term only, all right, thingamabob. So this woman would get this rash that had this nice geometric cutoff on her neck. Usually it would show up on Sundays or Mondays and it turned out she was allergic to fragrance. So she didn't use any, any perfume, though. Uh, it didn't make sense for a geometric pattern for like a rinse off or something like that. Turned out that she was allergic to fragrance and it was her boyfriend's um, cologne. And so they would go out dancing. He would put the cologne on and then whenever they would dance, she would, rest her, she would rest her chin on his shoulder. And it was right where her skin was in contact with his shirt that she got the rash, which is why we had the nice cutoff right there. All right, so this guy uh, worked as a cameraman for local TV and he had this on one eyelid, right? This woman loved this case, so she had a rash on her right hand that she would get in November every year. All right, so these two were both allergic to black rubber. So the, the cameraman, right, it was the little eyepiece thing for whenever he would hold it up against his his eye whenever he was doing the camera. Anybody have a good idea what the woman who got the rash in November was? Turkey basters? R- yes. a good idea. It wasn't a turkey baster. Escalators. Escalators, Escalators. Right? So when she would start her holiday shopping, her, her husband was initially excited about the allergy to the mall, but she... Fortunately, figured out that if she just didn't put her hand on the escalator, she could still go and do all of her shopping. All right. So what's the clinical pattern that I'm getting at here? Right. So I showed you the cell phone. Uh, I showed you the guy with the, you know, the one eye, the guy with the one hand. The clinical pattern here is an asymmetrical dermatitis. So a dermatitis that is consistently asymmetrical. So don't just judge it on the day that they walk in. Is it a little asymmetrical? Ask them if it's consistently asymmetrical. Anytime something is consistently asymmetrical, it's, it's very likely going to be an allergic contact dermatitis. And, and what you've got to do is basically send the patient thinking and looking for exposures and hopefully they, they will find it. Because again, it's one of those deals you can question people forever while you're sitting there in the office and you're never going to hit, you know, it was the escalator in the mall, right? That woman figured that out herself and then came back and told me. Um, so it's not that useful to, to do all the questioning. You just got to kind of send the people out looking. And hopefully they'll be bright enough that they'll figure it out. They often won't buy it, so in other words, it's not easy to convince them that this is what's going on. So you've got to be pretty um, confident and aggressive in saying, this is what it is, this is what it is, this is what it is. It's something you're touching, it's something you're touching, it's something you're doing. And And just hopefully they'll believe you and pay attention for six weeks or a couple months and come up with what it is that's the actual trigger. All right, so now some eyelid dermatitis. So here, we've got this woman, uh, sort of this, this eyelid a little bit puffier, a little bit um, thicker. Same thing down here, this more scaly, but again, much worse on one eyelid compared to the other. This woman with a nice eyelid dermatitis that's a lot worse on one eye compared to the other as well. And the clinical pattern for this eyelid dermatitis is consistently asymmetric. And this fits with exactly what I just showed you a minute ago with with those other patients. So empirically, this is an ectopic allergic or irritant contact dermatitis. Somebody comes in with eyelid dermatitis, if it's worse on one eyelid than the other, 100% of the time it's ectopic. They're transferring it from their hands. that's probably not 100% of the time. But it's extremely, that's the diagnosis until proven otherwise there's an irritant or an allergen that they're transferring to their eyelid with their hand. So in these two patients, these patients, so let's go back and say what these were, this woman, it was just her moisturizer. She didn't really have a rash on her hands, it was just her eyelids. This woman, it was butylcarbamate, right? And so that's something I probably see allergy to once every two years. I don't know what it's in, I don't know much about it. So I go and do some research on it, One of the things it's used as is a paint preservative. Turns out she's a painter, and we got her switched to a different paint, and then she got better. Other than be, you know, my initial reaction whenever she turned out allergic to propanyl butyl carbamate was that it had nothing to do with her eyelid dermatitis. The only reason that I figured it out was because I knew that because this was an asymmetrical eyelid dermatitis, it was almost certainly going to be an ectopic contact dermatitis, and so I needed to look really hard for what was going on in her. This woman turned out to be allergic to parabens, and so she had a a bilateral eyelid dermatitis because there were parabens in her facial soap, but it was much worse on this eyelid because she also had hemorrhoids, and she would apply a hemorrhoid preparation before bed, and then while she was at night asleep, there were two places on her body that were itching, and she was transferring stuff from one place to the other leading to a much worse eyelid dermatitis on that side. Very nice thought, huh? That goes right along nicely with the dust mite poop we talked about yesterday. <laughs> All right, so the diagnosis here, ectopic allergic irritant contact dermatitis, avoidance of hand exposure. So hand moisturizers, right? Lanolin, methylchloroisothiazolinone, formaldehyde fragrance and parabens. Worry about hand soaps. And you were some about nails. Nail, ectopic contact dermatitis from nails is exceedingly uncommon. I probably see one or two cases a year, but it's something that we're all taught about a lot, right? Allergic contact dermatitis to toluene sulfonamide resin. So what are some of the low allergenicity products that, that I just, you know, when I see somebody and I think they're allergic, what am I going to have switch to right away for their face? Bare minerals, powders, not their liquid stuff, but their powders are fantastic. All May and Clinique are both pretty good as well but just their makeups, not their moisturizer and hair products. Petroleum jelly, CeraVe cream's pretty good, it has, only has parabens, e, and same thing goes for CeraVe lotion. Illumin dye by Goldwell. Goldwell is the main supplier of uh, beauty products to salons. And so any salon, any hairdresser is gonna know Goldwell. Um, so if, if you tell them Illumin dye by Goldwell, they'll be able to get it. The problem is Illumin dye is for like turning brown hair bright red, or orange, or whatever. You, it's not like a normal, let's cover up the gray kind of a dye. And so it's, it's often not very useful for people. Grecian formula 16 can make hair black. Uh, it's lead acetate based, not paraphenylenediamine based. And so if somebody's looking for a way to at least cover gray or dye their hair black, the Grecian formula will work. We talked about the AFM safe choice. Uh, I haven't updated this slide yet, but the to reflect that it contains a methylchloroisothiazolinone, but that free and clear Neutrogena T-SAL, Cloderm cream, protopic ointment, the desoxymedazone ointment, if you compound it with petroleum jelly, and then for nail polish, Revlon Color Stay does not have toluene sulfonamide in it, so you can recommend that as a nail polish empirically if you're worried at all about ectopic contact dermatitis from nail polish. Another one of my favorite diagnoses. Okay, ab- so this is probably my very favorite diagnosis. So this guy, itchy papules on the elbows, kind of widespread itchy eruption, okay? This is him after we implemented treatment for his allergic contact dermatitis, all right? This girl, itchy papules on the elbows, vesicular dermatitis on the feet. This kid, itchy papules on the elbows. So the clinical pattern here, itchy papules on the extensor elbows, can also be a widespread eruption, and you don't need to have the itchy papules on the elbows, but when you have the itchy papules on the elbows, this is the diagnosis until proven otherwise. So it can can be just a widespread eruption, can be just itchy, can be just a rash on the hands and feet. So the diagnosis here is dietary reaction to nickel. So there's been a huge amount of research done on this in Europe, and when you look at the dietary content of nickel in the United States, about one person in a thousand will walk around with an itchy rash as a result of being allergic to nickel and having nickel in their foods. The itchy papules on the elbows are a really useful tip-off. History is not helpful at all. So many of these people, do you react to earrings? Have you ever had a problem from you know down here from belt buckles and jean snaps? No, 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 no. And the reason that, that you don't get that a lot is in order to get contact dermatitis on your skin from nickel, you have to have the right skin surface chemistry so it depends on the pH of your sweat, the salinity of your sweat. So if your sweat isn't good enough to cause nickel to be released from jewelry, you'll never get problems from jewelry or anything else no matter what you do. But if you eat the nickel, you, it's still gonna get absorbed and you can get a widespread rash from it. So history is not particularly helpful here. So the, the lots of research has been done on this. Um, when you look at the dose response curves, about one person in 1,000 gets enough nickel in, their, in the normal American diet to get these reactions. So one person in a thousand doesn't sound like that many until you think that with 300 million people in the United States, that means there's about 300,000 people walking around the United States with a bad, severely itchy rash as a result of di- nickel in their diet. I've seen a lot more of this the last three or four years, probably because of the switch to whole grain. All right, so what are the foods in a low nickel diet? Whole grains are high nickel, Peanuts are ex- exceptionally high nickel. Chocolate, the darker it is, the more nickel. Legumes, so that means beans, peas, peanuts. And then oatmeal is probably the very highest nickel food. Okay, so, and that's a pretty quick thing to ask somebody. Do you, you know, do you eat a lot of whole grains, peanuts, peanut butter, chocolate, beans, peas, and oatmeal? And and those are really the highest nickel foods. Now, you don't need to eat any of this stuff. Just in a normal diet, you can still get a fair amount of nickel. But any of that stuff, it makes it a slam dunk. And and probably a quarter of these people, I'll get a great history where it's like, oh yeah, I started eating oatmeal every morning for breakfast eight months ago, and my rash started seven months ago. Like, you, you will get some of those. The other thing that helps is taking vitamin C supplements with your meals. And so you've gotta take it at the time that you eat because the vitamin C has to be in your intestinal tract at the same time as the nickel. The vitamin C blocks the intestinal absorption of the nickel, so it also helps helps reduce how much nickel gets into your blood and then it reduces how much of a reaction you you can get. So next pattern. This is the hand and pattern, right? So hand, and there are two places you tend to get it, hand and butt, right, so hand and butt, Hands and neck, hand in, and I don't know why it tends to be hand in butt, but it does. Hand in face. this one is a great case. Bad dermatitis on her hands, and then a bad dermatitis here, not an atopic. And it turned out it was because she spent a lot of her time standing like that. And so the stuff that she was getting on her hands was also getting spread to her antecubital, to her anticubital fossa. So the clinical pattern here is hand dermatitis combined with dermatitis at some other site. The most common other sites is the face and the buttock. The face and the buttocks are the, are the two most common other sites. And so diagnosis allergic contact dermatitis to something being transferred with the hand, same idea as that ectopic eyelid dermatitis that, that I talked about. And so management for this, stop all products applied to the area that's affected. And again, you've got to just hammer that point home to the patient, stop everything. Even once a month is too much. That could be enough to keep it going. You've got to stop everything. You've got to stop everything. You've got to really hammer that point home. For perianal, I've seen a couple of cases that are moistened wipes. Uh, There are preservatives in them, and so those are often a potential problem. All right, so then ring dermatitis, right? So, nice picture here, erythematous papules under a ring. Ring dermatitis, is never allergic contact dermatitis. I'm I'm not, again, never is probably too strong of a word. I'm sure it happens. But people are not allergic to their rings, period, okay? With rings, it's always irritant dermatitis due to retained soap and water. There's a couple of key observations here. Number one, you never see this in men. And number two, where you do tend to see it are when women wear two rings on the same finger or or they're rings that have stones in them. And it's because whenever you have two rings next to each other, it creates a capillary action that pulls water into the space between the two rings, okay? And with all of the, any settings, if there's a hollow stuff in the back of the ring, that again creates an area for soap and water to be drawn into. And so what do you do for these people? Only one ring per finger, and they can go and get the concavities in the back of the ring filled in by a jeweler, okay? Jewelers can do that, it's not not a big deal. If you do those two things, typically, ring dermatitis goes away. And that's why men, you know, we, when, we, when you say, okay, men don't get this, how come? That's interesting. Well, the initial answer is, well, men don't wear rings. The vast majority of men in America are wearing at least one ring, except whenever they go to certain clubs where they may take the ring off, but hopefully they're not spending that much time there. So the vast majority of men in America are wearing rings and they never get this. And it's because they're wearing a single ring and the ring doesn't have any concavities in it. Tetrix cream I find some benefit for. So this this dermatitis of the hands, dermatitis of the hands, dermatitis of the hands, the clinical pattern here, itchy hand dermatitis in a healthcare worker. It's pretty straightforward for all of us. This is allergic contact dermatitis from rubber accelerators. The thing that you need to know here, what gloves can you use? So non-sterile, index-free nitrile gloves These are relatively cheap. They're fabulous gloves. They're actually nicer than normal nitrile gloves in terms of uh, how they feel and how well they protect you. Vinyl gloves, if protection from biological fluids is not crucial. So vinyl gloves are plastic and not rubber, so they're fine. And then if you need sterile gloves, Dermaprene Ultra is the sterile glove that's useful. This is a neoprene glove, and so it doesn't have any of the normal rubber accelerators in it. In a pinch, you can wear vinyl gloves under your surgical gloves, and that will protect you from the allergens in normal surgical gloves penetrating through. And don't forget gloves and kits. I've had several nurses who never get better because they have to put Foley's in or they have to do central lines and that kind of stuff, and there are sterile gloves prepackaged in those kits, and it just doesn't occur to them you know, to put that two and two together that putting that glove on for two minutes to put this Foley in is enough to keep their hand dermatitis going. So low allergenicity products for hand dermatitis, CeraVe Cream Lotion Cleanser, Tetrix, Neutrogena Norwegian Formula Fragrance Free, Ucern Plus Intensive Repair Hand Cream and Cetaphil Gentle Skin Cleanser. And I will frequently tell patients, you know, one of the big things that I'll see as a problem with hand dermatitis is soaps in public places. So restaurants, doctor's offices, like, whenever at work, whenever you're not at home, that doesn't mean you can forget about your allergies. And so people, by going to the bathroom and then washing their hands wherever they're at, get exposure to allergens that way. And so I will tell them, I usually for cleanser, tell people to use Cetaphil Gentle Skin Cleanser, but to use the generic, because it's dirt cheap. You can get it at CVS or Walgreens, that they need to carry that around with them. And then last one, this is just kind of a nifty thing, pizza shop workers, okay? Fingertip dermatitis in pizza shop workers. This is a little more than a fingertip dermatitis, but a hand dermatitis in a pizza shop worker. These people get, um, and usually pizza. This is contact urticaria from the foods, right? from the toppings that they're putting on. Dipping in, grabbing it, putting it on the pizza, doing that repeatedly over and over again. I'll have them bring in all the toppings, and then you scratch, you scratch their arm, put a little sample of topping on, wait 20 minutes, and they'll get a, they'll get a hive at whichever toppings they're allergic to. Fortunately, people have not gone to college for four years and then grad school to be a pizza shop worker. So it's usually a pretty reasonable thing to say, look, you need to stop working at the pizza shop and go find a job somewhere else. Because there, there's really not a good way to, to get around this other than you just got to stop touching this stuff. All right, so protein contact, dermatitis contact, urticaria, got to completely avoid touching them. Um, Tetrix following every hand washing, CeraVe, basically just tell them to stop working at the pizza shop though. Last one, sunscreen that burns and stings upon application. I get a lot of those people. So it's a photochemical reaction or a straight irritant dermatitis. I have not seen a. have seen one case of photoallergic contact dermatitis from sunscreens in the last five years. It's exceedingly rare. These people are getting irritant dermatitis from the photochemical reactions or straight irritant dermatitis. So how do you manage them? You've got to get them on a sunscreen that has only titanium dioxide and or zinc oxide. The products to me that are easiest to find are Blue Lizard Sensitive, and that's available at CVS. Uh, It's also fragrance free, but you get a a much better chance of people being able to tolerate sunscreen if you haven't switched to this. And that's it. thank you, guys. So if anybody has questions, yes? Have you ever used topical glycopyrrolate? Topical, topical glycopyrrolate. I do not. Uh, I know that it's, it's, there are lots of reports in the literature about using it in conjunction with iontophoresis, um, you know, getting the, the hand-foot um, stuff. But no, I haven't used topical glycopyrrolate. Um, have you, can you explain why the scalp doesn't get inflamed with the rinse-off dermatitis? I cannot explain it. I have never seen a case of allergic contact. Dermatitis. I've seen one case of allergic contact dermatitis on the scalp. My biggest guess is that very little of the shampoo actually gets on the actual scalp. I think it's much more on the hairs, not so much on the scalp. But I, you just—I don't see contact dermatitis on the scalp. It's almost—if somebody walks in and I think they've got contact dermatitis, if their scalp is itchy as well, then I'm pretty convinced they don't have contact dermatitis. It almost rules it out for me but I have no explanation for why. And do any of the bare minerals or minerals type makeups have metals in them? So the only metals that that are worrisome um, so gold allergy and so gold allergy for a long time was thought to not be relevant but it turns out that gold allergy causes facial dermatitis in women but it only causes facial dermatitis in women if the gold is combined with titanium dioxide and so as we've gone to more titanium dioxide containing sunscreens and as we've gone to having most, pretty much all foundations contain titanium dioxide, the titanium dioxide draws the gold out of the jewelry and then the areas of the body where the titanium dioxide gets applied get a dermatitis. And so facial dermatitis in women, it's, if if I patch test them and find a gold allergy, they get two choices. Um, Choice number one being no makeup, choice number two being no gold jewelry switch to platinum. Most of the women prefer to continue wearing makeup and get platinum jewelry, as, a pers- as opposed to stopping all makeup. So, but that's a, it's not an, impi- there's no, I, I haven't got a way to make that diagnosis empirically. I it, There's too many causes of facial dermatitis, and, and I'm, I'm not going to tell somebody to switch to platinum makeup, or switch to platinum jewelry until I know that they're gold allergic. Yes? Um, my question is about lip dermatitis and I was wondering if you ever wonder if there's a possibility that HSV has is there also? So I do see some of these people with recurrent um, episodes of HSV. I think it, I've, I will say I've not tried treating any of these people with chronic bowel tracts, so I can't, it's possible. Um, but I do think of it as being an initial injury that can lead to that initial damage that then leads to chronic re-injury and, and irritant dermatitis. But it, it's actually not a bad idea. I may try treating some of these people with, with Valtrex, you know, 1,000 milligrams a day and see if that helps. And then my second question is the Eucerin Extra Repair, yes. the hand stuff, does that have um, ceramides in it? It does not. So the main thing that it's a, that it's a, benefit, what I like about that product is it has alpha hydroxy acid in it uh, and it has no allergens. I am not convinced that the ceramide-based stuff is really that useful for any dermatitis that involves the palms. Um, Because I'm completely, it seems very unlikely to me that the ceramides would be able to actually penetrate through the stratum corneum on the palm and do any good. And so that's one place, I don't typically use a lot of CeraVe or epicerum for my hand dermatitis patients, unless I'm specifically dealing with the interdigital slash dorsal hand dermatitis, um, in which case certainly there, there, is, there can be adequate penetration. Thank you. Yep. Quick question about the high dose of antihistamines you use. First of all, I was surprised at such high doses. Um, do insurances bite on that at all, or is it a big headache? So, right, the cetirizine and loratadine are both over the counter. And so people can go to Costco or to Sam's Club and get, you know, 90 of them for 15 bucks. And so the, the fexafenidine, I usually don't have a problem with. Uh, hope, I assume that's because it's generic. I absolutely can't get anybody on anything other than the normal dose of Zizel. So, you know, Zizel, the best I can do is the, is the normal dose. And that's why I don't use a whole lot of it, it's just that it, it, I don't have as much flexibility with it. And really no problems at all, even urinary retention with men? What's that? you really have no problems at all with those doses? No. Okay, okay, thank you. Hi, what about candida contributing to the look of lip dermatitis? Could that be a possibility? Candida contributing to the? To the lip irritation. Um, So again, I will say I haven't tried treating these patients specifically for it, because my sort of trigger to treat for Candida tends to be, you know, the perlesh the, the angular chelitis. Again, it's, some, it's something that just clinically it hadn't occurred to me before. And so I and there's been nothing to make me think that that's the case. But it's actually something, again, I'll, I may try that in a few people and see if it makes a difference. Okay. But I, I, haven't, I haven't tried it, so I can't comment. Okay, thanks. Thanks for the ideas. Okay, I, th- I think that's it. So thank you guys very much.